section thirty one masterpieces of negro eloquence edited by alice dunbar nelson this librivox recording is in the public domain the army as a trained force by theophilus g stewart doctor of divinity chaplain twenty fifth united states infantry reverend bishops and brethren of the ministry and my brethren of the laity i thank the honourable commission from my heart for the distinguished favour they have conferred upon me in inviting me to address this august assembly never before during all my forty years of public life have i been granted so majestic a privilege never before have i ventured to assume so grave a responsibility and i may add never before have i felt so keenly my inability to do justice to the occasion i am encouraged however by the reflection that i am in the house of my friends where i may hope for an indulgent hearing and especially upon the subject which i have the high honour to bring before you the purport of my address is the conservation of life the development of physical and moral power as well as of mental alertness the creation of bravery and the evolution of that higher and broader element courage the formation of character sturdy enough to upbear a state and intelligent enough to direct its government what i have to say will be toward the production of a robust and chivalric manhood the only proper shelter for a pure and glorious womanhood noble women are the crown of heroic men none but the brave deserve the fair and none but the brave can have them for the purpose of illustrating and enforcing these great social physical and moral truths i have chosen the army of our country or the character and training of the american soldier in this i do not depart from biblical practice how many hearts have been cheered and strengthened by the thrilling pictures painted by st paul of the soldiers of his times how many have in thought beheld his armed hosts and heard his stirring exhortation fight the good fight of faith we owe our existence as a nation to the men in arms who for eight years met the force of great britain with counterforce and thus cleared the field for the statesmanship that can make the proverbial two blades of grass grow the man with the gun opened the way for the man with the hoe we who are here and the race we represent owe our deliverance from chattel slavery to the men in arms who conquered the slaveholders rebellion it is a sad thought but nevertheless one too true thus far in human history that liberty man's greatest earthly boon can be reached only through a pathway of blood the army made good our declaration of independence and upon the army and navy lincoln relied for the efficacy of his plan of emancipation abstract right is fair to look upon and has furnished the theme for charming essays by such beautiful writers as ruskin and emerson but right backed up by battalions is the right that prevails when the men of blood and iron come there is no longer time for the song or the essay it is get in line or be shot the days of rhetoricals are over the eloquence of the soldier silences all even the laws are dumb when the sword is unsheathed is this horrible doctrine 
is only god overthrowing pharaoh by means more humane than his fearful plagues and less destructive than the billows of that relentless sea over which redeemed israel so exultingly sang no brethren the sword of the lord and of gideon has not ceased to be a useful instrument it is the proper thing for evil-doers the army is the national sword and the powers that be bear it not in vain it is a fearful engine of destruction pure and simple von moltke says the immediate aim of the soldier's life is destruction and nothing but destruction and whatever constructions wars result in are remote and non-military an austrian officer says live and let live is no device for an army contempt for one's own comrades for the troops of the enemy and above all fierce contempt for one's own person are what war demands of every one far better is it for an army to be too savage too cruel too barbarous than to possess too much sentimentality and human reasonableness if the soldier is to be good for anything as a soldier he must be exactly the opposite of a reasoning and thinking man the measure of goodness in him is his possible use in war war and even peace require of the soldier absolutely peculiar standards of morality the recruit brings with him common moral notions of which he must seek immediately to get rid for him victory success must be everything the most barbaric tendencies in man come to life again in war and for war's uses they are incommensurably good perhaps the greatest of american psychologists professor william james adds to these remarks consequently the soldier cannot train himself to be too feelingless to all those usual sympathies and respects whether for persons or for things that make for conservation yet he says the fact remains that war is a school of strenuous life and heroism and being in the line of aboriginal instinct is the only school that as yet is universally available emerson says war educates the senses calls into action the will perfects the physical constitution brings men into such swift and close collision in critical moments that man measures man it is not my purpose however to glorify war war to me is horrible beyond description or conception and it is for war that armies are trained and yet the training of an army like the training of even a pugilist is a work of great moral value notwithstanding the fact that the army gave us our independence when the revolution had succeeded and the constitution had been framed and the country launched on her career there was a tendency to forget joseph so strong was the feeling against a standing army that it was with difficulty that even a nucleus was maintained the first legislation on the subject gave us but one battalion of artillery and one regiment of infantry the whole consisting of forty-six officers and eight hundred and forty men in eighteen fourteen because of the war with england the army ran up to sixty thousand but the next year fell to twelve thousand and continued even below that number up to one thousand eight hundred and thirty-eight when it again went up to about twelve thousand in eighteen forty six during the mexican war it reached about eighteen thousand when the civil war broke out it was about twelve thousand there were in the army at the time of the beginning of the civil war over one thousand officers 
two hundred and eighty-six of these left the service of the united states and subsequently served in the confederate army of these two hundred and eighty-six one hundred and eighty-seven had been educated at west point but so far as i am able to say now not a single enlisted man followed the example of these officers beside the staff departments the army now consists of fifteen regiments of cavalry thirty batteries of field artillery one hundred and twenty-six companies of coast artillery and thirty regiments of infantry these different classes are known as the three arms of the service cavalry artillery and infantry our whole army to-day numbers sixty-seven thousand two hundred and fifty-nine men we are the greatest nation with the smallest army our army however is capable of rapid expansion and with our national guard we need not fear any emergency this army though so small is in one sense a trained athlete ready to defend the nation's honor and flag in another sense it is a vast practical school in which the military profession is taught the students are not only the sixty thousand who are now serving but the many thousands also who come and go men enlist for three years and although many realists the army is constantly receiving recruits and constantly discharging trained soldiers these discharged soldiers are often found among our best citizens the entire corps of over three thousand eight hundred officers may be regarded as professors or instructors whose duty it is to bring the army up to a state of perfection to this corps of three thousand eight hundred commissioned officers must be added also the large number of intelligent non-commissioned officers who are assistant instructors of the very highest utility the work of the army consists of study and practice instruction and drill it is an incessant school there are officers school non-commissioned officer school school of the soldiers school of the company school of the battalion post school besides drills and lectures without number the actual scientific information imparted to the enlisted men is considerable to specify only in small part it includes all methods of signalling up to telegraphy all methods of preserving and preparing food all methods of first treatment of wounds how to estimate distance to map a country to care for property and stock and the most thorough knowledge of weapons and warfare to become a second lieutenant in the army a man must either go through west point or have the equivalent of a college education especially in mathematics history and law and have besides an accurate knowledge of what is purely military and when he is made a second lieutenant and enters upon his career as an officer his studies begin afresh he must study to prepare himself for subsequent promotions failure in this means dismission the army officer to-day must be exceedingly thorough and accurate in his knowledge general corbin says never before in the history of the army have there been so many acceptable candidates for promotion as there are at this time never before has the army been in a higher state of efficiency and in more perfect accord than it is to-day until within a short time an officer graduated at the military academy at west point was looked upon as a man with a finished education but to-day and for the last four years we accept that education merely as the foundation upon which a more advanced education is to be built this theory is in general practice and has been so accepted the service schools at fort monroe fort totten fort riley fort leavenworth and the war college at washington are in most respects high-class postgraduate schools in addition of this every post is a school of application educating officers and men for the duties now required of them what then is this training of the army for which the officer must possess this most accurate thorough and scientific education he is required to have this education that he may train the soldier up to the highest point of efficiency the officer must know and must be able to impress the soldier with the fact that he does know the officer must have the full science of everything pertaining to the soldier's work in order that he may teach the soldier the art of it 
the nature of the training to which the soldier is subjected may be best understood by considering its end this as in all training is more important than the method the primary object of the training is to unify the army and make it the efficient instrument for executing the nation's will by discipline individual efforts are brought under control of the chief a company is well disciplined when in its movement its collective soul so to speak is identified with that of its commander the officer must have possession of his men so that when the command is given an electric current will seem to pass through the company and the movement will as it were execute itself in a well-drilled and well-disciplined company the orders do not seem to pass through the intellects of the men without reflection but simply by concentrated attention the work is done the wills of the men are not only temporarily dislodged but in their place is substituted the dominant will of the commander this is the psychological end sought and this condition secures instantaneous obedience to orders it is this which brings about those marvels of execution which occur among disciplined men men perform acts in which neither their personal reason nor even their personal will has any part a second end of the training is to habituate the men so firmly in the performance of certain movements that no emotion can interfere with their action upon the battlefield there is nothing left of the exercises of the times of peace but that which has become a habit or in a word an instinct the soldier must be so trained that he will go on with his work as long as he has the ability to do so one has said it must be the aim of the new discipline to make the private soldier capable of keeping steadfastly in mind for the whole of the day or even for several days and striving with all his might to carry out what he has been told by a superior who is no longer present and who for all he may know is dead a third end sought in military training is to render the soldier strong and agile so that he can move with rapidity sustain long marches and handle his weapon with dexterity every consideration in feeding clothing sheltering both men and animals has but one object efficiency all questions of moral duty all ideas of the spiritual or immortal interests are completely submerged beneath the ever-present thought of material force power must be had by men horses machinery power aggressive power is the all-pervading and all-controlling thought of the army an army is properly an incarnation of the fiend of destruction every part of its legitimate work is to destroy if it constructs bridges and builds roads erects forts and digs trenches these are all that it may destroy or prevent some other incarnation from destroying it armies lay waste and destroy cornfields orchards lawns life and treasure are all prey for the voracious destroyer the motive employed in bringing the soldier to the high state of excellence here described is always that of duty the word duty is very prominent and very full of meaning in the army military duty is made a moral obligation founded upon patriotism this sentiment of duty is the moral force in the army that gives dignity to its obedience the army develops strengthens and educates this sense of duty until it becomes supreme it is this sense of duty which produces endurance to undergo privations and leads men to be patient under the greatest sacrifices the physical force which we see in the army depends upon the moral or spiritual which we do not see the whole life of the army its very soul the breath which animates its every part is preparation for war to be ready for war is the supreme end toward which all its efforts tend the mechanical parts of the work are so numerous and various that i can barely outline them here there are those exercises which conduce to health and vigour 
known as the setting-up drill these exercises correct the form of the body and transform the recruit into a soldier the constant drills all have their effect upon the bearing and gait of the men the extensive system of calisthenics gives to the body suppleness all this work is done under direction so that obedience and discipline are taught at the same time with physical culture apart from these exercises are voluntary athletics which are greatly encouraged it is believed that athletic exercises by bettering the bodies of the men better also their minds that for the welfare of the army these exercises rank next to training in shooting i know you will take pride in the fact that the black soldiers both of infantry and cavalry occupy a place in the very front rank in all these manly exercises they are equal to america's best on the drill ground on the athletic grounds and on the field of bloody strife the practice of cleanliness is enjoined all the time along with these exercises the soldier is taught how to make his bed and to put all his effects in order and is then compelled to do it and thus there is established within him a love of order punctuality cleanliness and order are the soldier's three graces the hygiene of his body care of his arms and equipments respect for his uniform are driven into his inmost soul our regiment lived in the midst of cholera without suffering from the disease hence the army is a great object lesson of what care and training can make of men but the army in our republic is of far greater value in a moral sense than in a physical sense in these days when authority is departing from the home the church and the school it is well that it can find refuge somewhere in the country the working of the army rests entirely upon authority one single will pervades every part of it although this will is participated in by thousands every subordinate is independent within limits but one general will controls all respect for authority is enforced and thus taught not in theory alone but by practice the corporal is not the same as a private the man who holds a commission from the president represents the high authority of the republic and the true soldier yields him both obedience and respect everywhere the soldier is taught obedience to law after all that i have said it is scarcely necessary to emphasize the fact that the soldier's obedience becomes voluntary and that he takes pride in his profession hence the army is a body of men not moving according to their own wills not a deliberative assembly but a purely executive body the incarnation of law and of force it is silent but powerful it does not talk but acts army spells action the men who are trained in our army are not likely to become members of the lawless element they have learned too well the lessons of order and the necessity of subordination the attitude of the army upon the vexed race question is better than that of any other secular institution of our country when the fifth army corps returned from cuba and went into camp at montauk point broken down as it was by a short but severe campaign it gave to the country a fine exhibition of the moral effects of military training there was seen the broadest comradeship the four black regiments were there and cordially welcomed by their companions in arms in the manoeuvres at fort riley no infantry regiment on the ground was more popular than the twenty-fifth and in contest the men of the twenty-fifth proved their mettle by carrying off nearly every medal and trophy in sight perhaps the most notable series of events in the light of the popular notion of negro inferiority were the athletic sports the first of these was the baseball game for the championship of the department of the missouri and a silk banner this contest had gone through the several organizations and was finally narrowed down to the tenth cavalry and the twenty-fifth infantry 
on october twenty seventh which was set apart as a field day for athletic sports the officers of the encampment many women and civilians as well as the soldiers of the regular army present assembled on the athletic grounds at ten thirty a m to witness the game a most interesting and thoroughly scientific game was played the twenty-fifth winning in the eleventh inning by a score of four to three the banner would have gone to colored soldiers in either case we must not expect too much of the army it is not a church not a sunday school not a missionary society its code of morals is very short very narrow but it enforces what it has its commandments are one thou shalt not fail to obey thy superior officer two thou shalt not miss any calls sounded out by the trumpeter three thou shalt not appear at inspection with anything out of order in thy person clothing or equipment four thou shalt not lie five thou shalt not steal six thou shalt not leave the post or garrison without permission i would say further that warfare now requires so much from the man who carries it on that it is impossible to unite the general and the statesman in one person the army must be purely executive carrying out the mandates of the state the moral and political questions must be resolved by men of other professions the soldier has all that he can do to attend to the exigencies of the battle the army of our republic has a great moral mission which it is performing almost unconsciously it is a most influential witness against lawlessness by its own perfect order and obedience to discipline it gives the force of a powerful example in favor of loyalty to the republic and respect for the laws the best school of loyalty in the land is the army every evening in the camp to see ten thousand men standing with respectful attention to our song to the national banner is a lesson of great moral force in still another sense our army is also a great moral force when men see what a terrific engine of destruction it is the good people rejoice because they know this engine is in safe hands and the evil disposed look on and are enlightened fierce anarchists will stop to count ten at least before they begin their attack upon the government lastly the army by the very aristocracy of its constitution contributes much to make effective the doctrines of equality the black soldier and the white soldier carry the same arms eat the same rations serve under the same laws participate in the same experience wear the same uniforms are nursed in the same hospitals and buried in the same cemeteries the roman catholic church by its priestly aristocracy has always been a bulwark against caste so in the same manner the army of our republic by its aristocracy of commission has proven itself the most effectual barrier against the inundating waves of race discrimination that the country has as yet produced End of section thirty one